Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is the psalm we'll be in this morning, picking up where we left off last week in Psalm 20. And as we do every week, we'll begin by reading the whole psalm together, and then we'll begin with a word of prayer. You can see here, this is a psalm of David. Beginning in verse 1, We read David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, O Lord, in your strength the King rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings, You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the King trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, He shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. You will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, you have set your glory upon your King. You have exalted your Son over all creation giving Him authority in heaven and on earth, and declaring to the world, through the Word of God, through the message of the Gospel, that Your King reigns, and He will return. And when He returns, He will return to put an end to all sin and evil. Lord, those of us who have been in Your grace brought to the King with life and salvation join in this chorus of voices from thousands of years ago who sang of Your power. 
And we long to see the day come when the world will be renewed and when all evil will be done away with and we ourselves will never sin again. We ask as well, Lord, that as Your patience is continuing to wait, as Your Son reigns from heaven now awaiting for the day when He will return to earth in glory, we ask that all sinners who hear the proclamation of Your Word would turn from their sin be saved from the judgment to come and be made heirs of the glorious kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do this for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we come to Psalm 21, we are coming to a psalm that is, in essence, the complement of Psalm 20. Psalm 20 that we looked at last week was a psalm that was a prayer for the King, for Christ. And Psalm 21 is a psalm that looks forward to and celebrates the answer to those very prayers. And we can see this in the psalm in several places. So if you look back with me again at Psalm 20, verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. And at the very end of the psalm, verse 9 says, O Lord, save the King." And then when we come to Psalm 21, the very first verse, we read there that the king is exulting in the Lord's salvation. In Psalm 20, again in verse 4, David prays there for the king and he says, may he grant you your heart's desire. And then when we come to Psalm 21, verse 2, he says, you have given him his heart's desire. In Psalm 20, verse 5, David prays there, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And in Psalm 21, verse 4, the results of the prayer are stated. He asked life of you. You gave it to Him. Length of days forever and ever. There are other parallels that we could see here, but the point is that this psalm, Psalm 21, looks forward to and believes in the fact that the Lord will answer David's prayers for Christ the King. And therefore, we have in this psalm a description of Christ's person, of who He would be and of what He would do. We have a description of His victories and of His reign. It is a psalm that shows us that Christ was no accident or surprise in history, but rather He was the culmination 
of all of Israel's hopes and the fulfillment of promises made throughout the prophets from long ago. He was, if we think about it, he was the most certain thing to ever happen in history. We weren't certain, right? When our parents had us, when our mothers conceived us, right? That was a surprise. They had hoped for us. They had longed for us. But they weren't sure that the Lord would give us to them. But that's not the case for Christ. Christ was anticipated from long ago. History was foretold about Him so that when He came into the world, He was indeed no surprise, but the most certain thing to occur in history. And David sees in Christ not just a man who would descend from his own line, but a man whose glory would be great precisely because it would be through him that the whole world would be set right and because it would be through him that the Lord Himself would establish His righteous reign over the earth. David knew that the Lord in heaven, His will to be done on earth, would come through His offspring. Through the King who would implement the perfect reign of the Lord on earth. And like Psalm 20, this psalm can also be divided into two parts that flesh out these ideas. The first part is from verses 1 to 7, where David here is speaking about Christ in the third person, and he's variously describing his glory. And then the second part is in verses 8 to 13 where David here is addressing his words to Christ, as if he's speaking directly to Him. And here he describes his power, or what he will do as the exalted, glorious King. And so this morning we're going to consider each of these parts in turn. And the first part, again, concerns the glory of Christ. Basically from verses 1 down to verse 7. And it concerns His glory because He he is described here, Christ is described throughout this section as both the fulfillment of all Old Testament hopes and on the other hand, the exalted, immovable King who both shares the glory of God and will reign forever. Now, to understand here what David is thinking about, we need to recognize that in this first section of the psalm, he's not just giving to us some random descriptions of Christ. All of these are very purposeful, and they all connect in some way to prior promises made about Christ in the Old Testament. 
It may be helpful to think about this in uh, using the sort of a picture of streams, right? You have, you have various streams that are flowing into one river. And these various streams are the different promises that were made in the Old Testament, and they all ultimately flow into that one river, which is Christ. There is one stream that alludes in the psalm to Adam and the restoration of the dominion mandate that was corrupted in Genesis 3. So if you'll remember, right, when God creates the man and the woman, He he tells them to have dominion over the whole earth, to subdue it, to be fruitful, and to multiply. And then that dominion was corrupted by sin and by the fall, by the rebellion. And there's an allusion ultimately here to the restoration of that very dominion. There's also another stream that alludes to the promises that were given to Abraham. That both he and his offspring would be blessed. There is another stream that alludes to the promises that were given to Israel's king specifically in the law in Deuteronomy 17, as we'll look at in a moment, and then closely related to those laws about the king and the promises given to him, there's another stream that alludes to the Davidic covenant and the promises that God made to David and his offspring. Now, in terms of these last two streams, One of the things that David says of Christ here is that the Lord grants all of His requests and the desires of His heart. And in verse 4, he refers to what one of those requests is. He says, if you look at me again in verse 4 of Psalm 21, he says, He asked life of you. You gave it to Him length of days forever and ever. Now, in the law, Deuteronomy 17, that that passage, that chapter, gave instructions for Israel's kings. They were commanded to write a copy of the law for themselves and to read in it day and night, to memorize it, to have it in their minds and in their hearts so that they might carry the law of God out in the land of Israel and so reflect God's rule on earth. And if they did so, it came with a promise that the king, Moses says, would continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel. And of course, when we come to David's own life and the covenant that God makes with him in 2 Samuel 7 about David having a son whose throne would be established forever, the Lord says to David in that covenant, He says, "...in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before Me." Your throne shall be established forever. Right? This promise 
that's made to David in that covenant and to his house and offspring is essentially an amplification of the promise made about the righteous king in Deuteronomy 17. The one who would carry out the righteous laws of God. And it is this very promise that David says Christ asked for and receives. Again, Psalm 21 verse 4. He's, he asked life for you. The, the Lord had promised to the righteous king he would live long in the land. His kingdom would endure forever. And Christ asked for that life and He says you gave it to Him length of days forever and ever. And of course, we know that this promise was fulfilled and given to Christ even despite the suffering of the death on the cross. And therefore, it is a life, this life that is given, that is ultimately marked by resurrection life. It is eternal life that is granted to the King on the basis of the promises of God and the fulfillment of the commandments of God by the King who upheld them. So as we read this text here, as, as David is anticipating his future offspring to receive life from the Lord, he knows that he will receive this life even despite the many afflictions and troubles he will endure. He knows also, as we've seen elsewhere from Psalm 16, that even the very threat of death will not keep the future king from inheriting all of the promises. So that when Christ ultimately dies on the cross, if we are believing all of what the Word of God says, we should have been there saying that at some point in time, that man will rise again. Now, we know that's the case as well. We know that we, sh we should and the disciples should have understood this because when Jesus rises from the dead, what does He rebuke His disciples for not believing? All of the law and the prophets. The Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures told them that this would happen and they were slow to believe. David laid it out for them in the Psalms. Again, as we've seen in various places and as we see yet again here. And so here we, we see this, this idea of life being given to the king in fulfillment of the, Deuteronomy, of, of, the, of the laws of Deuteronomy and of the promises given to David. Now, additionally, we find in the psalm the promises of blessing connected with royalty. Verse 3 says, For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. And verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Of course, the Old Testament, 
One of the most important events in the history of the people of Israel and God's covenant purposes and plans was the covenant that He made with Abraham, promising to bless him, to make him a blessing. And through him, blessings would come to all the families of the earth. God promised as well that through His line would come kings and ultimately one of those kings would wield the scepter forever. One of those kings who would ultimately descend from the line of Judah would reign over all nations forever and ever. And David is saying that all of these promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ the King. He is the one who is most blessed forever. His own person is blessed and blessings are mediated through Him to nations and He has a crown on His head because He is the royal Son who takes up the scepter and wields it forever and ever. He is the Lion from the tribe of Judah who reigns over all the peoples on the earth. And then furthermore, we find even that David is subtly alluding to the restoration of the dominion mandate that will come through the rule of Christ. And this allusion is essentially coming from Genesis through Psalm 8 into Psalm 21. He says in verse 5 of Christ, he says there, he says, is His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on Him. And the language that David is using here is the same language that he used back in Psalm 8 where he speaks about the glory of the Lord and about the splendor and honor and majesty that, that the man is crowned with as he is given dominion over the works of the Lord's hands and as all things are placed in subjection under his feet. And if you remember, when we looked at that psalm, Psalm 8, we saw that that psalm was making direct connections to Psalm, excuse me, to Genesis 1 and the command that was given to man to have dominion over the earth, and that because of the fall, the dominion had been corrupted. But we saw in Psalm 8 that it's ultimately going to come through Christ that that dominion will be restored. And when David says that Christ has splendor and majesty bestowed on Him, he is alluding to this exalted status Christ receives as that true man, as that true Adam who exercises his reign over the earth and under whose feet all things will be subjected. And therefore, when we bring all of these different allusions together, what David is doing is essentially piling on the various promises the various streams found throughout the Old Testament. Promises about man. Promises about Abraham. Promises about David's offspring. 
And he's saying that they're all going to be coming together in the one person, Jesus Christ. That Christ is the King who brings all the promises to their fulfillment. And this becomes one of the reasons He receives such great glory. This is why His name and His name alone is to be exalted over everything. Because all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. But before we move on to this next part of the psalm, I want, to, I want you to see one other significant aspect here of the glory of Christ, which is that His glory is a glory that is shared with God Himself. It is a glory that is shared with God Himself. What do I mean by that? I mean that His glory is so closely identified with the glory of God that they are virtually the same. Which is to say, to see the glory of the King is to see the glory of God. And throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, with the exception of two places, this Psalm and Psalm 45, which, not, not coincidentally, is another psalm about the king where the king is identified as God. With the exception of this psalm and Psalm 45, the exact phrase, splendor and majesty, is only applied to God. Psalm 96, verse 6 says there, splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Psalm 104, verse 1, says that He is clothed with splendor and majesty. Psalm 111, verse 3, says that His works are full of splendor and majesty. And in Psalm 145, verse 5, the psalmist says that he meditates on the glorious splendor of the Lord's majesty. It is God and God alone who is full of glory and splendor and majesty, and He does not share that glory with another. Let me emphasize, underline, and italicize that. He shares His glory with no one else. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says this very thing. God says, I am the Lord. That is My name. My glory I give to no other. And yet, what do we find? What do we find in this psalm? We find that God bestows His glory and splendor and majesty on another. Namely, the King. Christ. And this is not a contradiction of what is stated elsewhere. This psalm is not against what the Lord says in Isaiah. 
Rather, what it tells us is that this king David speaks of will be utterly unique. He's not just going to be like a Solomon or, or a Josiah or any other king that you can think of. He will have glory given to him by the Lord and a glory that reflects the very glory of the Lord Himself. And of course, this is what we ultimately see in the person of Christ. He is God become flesh. He is the One who possessed glory in eternity and the One who was given glory by God and the One who would return to glory after His death and resurrection. We can think, for example, when Christ is praying in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 5. And He says there, and now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. He had glory before. The very glory of being in the presence of God. The very glory of being one with God. The very glory of being God. And He's saying, after His work, after His death, burial, resurrection, and return to the presence of the Father, He will receive that glory again. For Christ to receive glory from God and for God to say that He gives His glory to no other necessarily means that Christ can be no other than God Himself. It means that He can be no other than God in the flesh. He is the King who had glory in the beginning, who receives glory for His rule, and who will be forever glorified as the eternal Son and heir to the eternal throne. He is the King about whom all the law and the prophets spoke, in whom all the law and the prophets are fulfilled, and to whom belongs all glory forever and ever. And friends, He will receive that glory not only in heaven, but on earth. And so we see in the first part of this psalm, this glory of Christ. But this then leads us, secondly, to the next part of the psalm where we're, we see essentially what that means. What's He going to do with that glory? And here we see the power of Christ. Which by this, I'm referring to His authority to carry out God's righteous will, which is His own will. He's carrying out His will in His rule, which is also carrying out the will of God on earth. And again, we see this in the second part of the psalm from verses 8 to 13. Beginning in verse 8, David here again addresses his words directly to Christ. Prior to this, he'd been speaking in the third person about, about Christ. Here he's speaking to Christ. And what he says primarily focuses on the fact 
that Christ will defeat all of his enemies. He will have victory over all those who have or whoever will rebel against him. We might even say that David is speaking here about the coming judgment that Christ will carry out himself with his power and with his authority. And so notice with me what he says beginning in verse 8. He says here, Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Unless we think here in this text that this includes the idea of conversion and enemies being made into His people as they submit themselves to Him and, 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 and turn away from their sin. Unless we have any idea that this submission of the enemies here is, is kind of like what we experience when we receive the Gospel. The following verses make it clear. There's no conversion involved here. This is judgment against enemies. David here only has in mind the final destruction of these enemies. There's no grace that's involved. There is a description of the utter defeat of the enemies of Christ. Which leads us to the next question. How will he do this? How does he defeat these enemies? Verse 9, he says, You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. Literally, at the time of your presence. Which is to say that when he comes, when he appears, when he is present in and for judgment, his enemies will be consumed in fire. And this fiery judgment will be at the same time the fiery judgment of the Lord. It will be the king executing the will of the Lord against all of the unrighteous. The second half of the verse says, the Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. Christ, in other words, is the agent who carries out the judgments and the righteous decrees of the Lord. And friends, I want to emphasize this point here that this is not a mere metaphor or an analogy for something else. Christ coming in judgment will utterly consume the wicked in fire. That's not just an image. That's not just a picture that the Bible wants us to have in our minds. That's reality. There are some and I've seen this more and more in recent days, who have strangely rejected and mocked this idea. And I'm not talking here about unbelievers who just reject and mock the idea of eternal judgment altogether. I'm talking about those in our camp. Those among the Reformed world 
mocking this very idea. Some doing so largely as a reaction against things like dispensationalism and some of the very indeed wild ideas about the end times in that theology. But some in their rejection of that have swung the pendulum in the opposite direction so far into believing that there's no fiery judgment at all in the return of Christ because many of them can't reconcile that with the idea that creation will be restored. Creation will be restored. That is most definitely the case. We read in 2 Peter, just as we read at the end of Revelation, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That is a restoration, a bringing back of the world to its pristine, Edenic state, and we might say in an even better way. That does not go against, though, the reality of a fierce, fiery judgment at the return of the Lord. Scripture is very clear, both through its use of types as well as direct prophecies that the coming of Christ will be one that brings consuming fire against all the enemies of God and that continues for all eternity in the lake of fire. We can think of many examples. I just want to draw your attention to some of them. Number one, in the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah is utterly destroyed. How? By God's fiery judgment from on high. And both Peter, in 2 Peter, as well as Jude, state explicitly that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is an example and is the paradigm for the kind of thing that's going to come upon all the ungodly. In Deuteronomy 13, if there was a city in Israel that had turned away from the Lord to serve false gods, if they abandoned the law and seek to become like the Canaanite nations who had been cast out of the land, that city was then to be placed under what was called the harem or the ban. You often read this in in the, the ESV as being devoted to destruction. And when the city was placed under that ban, everything in it was to be killed. Animals included. And all of its spoil was to be gathered together and burned as a whole burnt offering to the Lord to turn His fierce anger away from the nation. They were, in essence, to carry out God's judgment against the rebellious city by consuming it in fire. You can think about the book of Judges as well. And in Judges chapter 20, at the end of the book, when Israel had descended so deep into depravity and sin that they had become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read of that horrific account of the concubine 
who was abused all night by the men of Gibeah in Benjamin. And, and the author of the book of Judges is saying that an evil like this has not ever happened in Israel before. It, it, was, it was a level of depravity that even their eyes had not witnessed before. And what happened? What happens is a judgment against them. Benjamin's entire population was basically reduced to nothing and all of their towns were set on fire. They were placed under the ban. In Isaiah 34, when Isaiah describes the judgment that will fall on all nations with Edom being a, a kind of representative example for the ungodly, he says that their streams will be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur and her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched and its smoke shall go up forever. That is a direct quotation from what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah when God causes His judgments to fall upon it and Abraham is looking at the destruction of the cities and seeing the smoke rising up into the heavens. And Isaiah is saying this is what is coming upon the nations who remain in their rebellion. In Isaiah 66, in the final vision of the book of Isaiah, describing the ultimate end of all those who have rebelled against the Lord, he says that their bodies will be in a place where the worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18, the day of the Lord's wrath against all the nations is described as the fire of His jealousy that will consume all the earth and will make a full and sudden end of its inhabitants. In Matthew 13, Jesus says at the end of the age, the angels will gather all lawbreakers out of His kingdom and throw them into a fiery furnace. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians who are in the midst of suffering, persecution because of their devotion to the Lord, because they have accepted the Gospel, you know where he points their attention to? He, he, he fixes their eyes on the return of Christ. And that, that when that day comes, they will receive relief while God's righteous judgments come upon the world. And he, he points to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. He speaks of the Lord Jesus appearing to grant this relief to His saints from heaven with His mighty angels. And Paul says that when this happens, Jesus will come in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and that their punishment will be that of eternal destruction. I mean, we could multiply these statements from Old Testament to New Testament again and again and again. But the point is that the consistent theme and message of the Bible, especially after the flood and the days of Noah, is that God's 
final judgment will be patterned after what came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, and thus it will be a destruction that is total and complete and in flames. It's not a pretty picture. And it's not just an image to frighten us. It's the reality of the things that are to come. In the same way that waters were going to destroy the whole earth. That's reality. And so also is this fiery judgment to come. And this, friends, is what David himself is saying Christ will bring against his enemies. They will be consumed, he says, by fire. And in verse 10, they will be destroyed from the earth so that even their posterity will be no more. There, this is a universal, cataclysmic, total and complete conquest of the enemies of Christ. This is how He ultimately achieves And he will continue to have these enemies until he returns with the purpose of judgment. David goes on to say in verse 11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. His, His enemies are working against him. They despise Him. They despise His kingdom. They are those who are fitted into the mold of the Psalm 2 rebels who plot and scheme against the Lord and against His anointed. They are those who continue walking in the footsteps of those who crucified the Lord. They believe that they will win. They believe that there is no judgment to come. They believe that all of their opposition, all of their sin, all of their rebellion will go unpunished. But when Christ appears again and when He makes His presence known, He will put them all to flight. And like a conquering warrior, He will shoot His arrows into them. The the image here that David uses when he says you will aim at their faces with your bows literally describes the king turning his shoulder as he aims at the direction where the arrows are to go in his enemies as he shoots the arrows. And so what David is saying is that the enemies of Christ will be put to flight when he comes to make war against them. This is a very vivid picture, but the message of the psalm is clear. Christ is exalted and has been given the very glory of God. And therefore, in the power of that glory, He will establish His kingdom and defeat anyone who would stand in His way. 
And 2,000 years ago, when He was crucified by the evil plans and schemes of those who schemed against Him, He subsequently rose from the dead on the third day. And when this resurrection happened, friends, this resurrection was a public service announcement to the whole world, to the entire cosmos. It was simultaneously a declaration of war and a proclamation of victory. Christ in that moment condemned death to the sentence of death. He conquered the greatest power of the kingdom of darkness. He exposed all of the weakness of all powers and authorities and made it known that all things have been and will be subjected to Him forever and ever. His resurrection was a foretaste of the things that are to come. Because when He returns again, it will be just like David when he struck down Goliath and defeated the Philistines. The giant has already been killed. Christ has already struck down Goliath, taken his head, and held it up for all the enemies of the Lord's army to see. So that when he returns, all that will remain is for those who continued fighting for the kingdom of sin and darkness and death to flee while the armies of heaven pursue them and banish them from the land that is the Lord's. And friends, when that day comes, and when it passes, when it's over, no one will be asking the question, was the Lord's judgment right? They won't be questioning whether or not this was an overreaction. Was, was, was God's destruction of the world and of all of His enemies by fire? Was this, was this going overboard? They won't be asking that. They will know. We all will know that all of His judgments will be perfect and just. We were speaking about this last night around the dinner table. So we were talking about what we were going to be addressing in the morning. And the way I was describing it, I'll describe it like this to you. I've been recently, I've been kind of getting back into some of the World War, history, World War II history. Okay. And one of the things that happened, of course, during the war was that because it was dragging on so long, there were, there were many soldiers who were growing tired, weary, and questioning even among the, the allied forces, questioning what they're fighting for. Why are we continuing to fight this war? And then what happens? The Nazis are defeated. The allied powers are marching in. And what do they come across all over the land of Germany? They come across those concentration camps. And they see those thousands, millions of bodies of people who had been unjustly murdered by the evil regime, regime that was Nazi Germany. 
They saw the utter wickedness. And there was a time when one of the generals, Dwight Eisenhower, personally went to see the concentration camps because he wanted everyone to know what kind of evil had been taking place here. And when he saw it, he, he, he made the statement that our soldiers, they may not know what they're fighting for, but now they'll know what they're fighting against. It will be the same thing, brothers and sisters. If there is any question about the reality of the justice of God's judgments, when that day comes and all of the secrets of men are exposed, all of the evil of His deeds are brought to light, no one, including those who are under His judgment, will be able to question whether or not they were, they were righteous. Because they will see the reality of sin and evil. Christ comes as a conquering warrior to rid the world of all that is evil. Not what is good. He rids it of its sin and evil. The only real question, friends, is when He returns, whose side will you be on? Will you be a Philistine fighting against the Lord's armies? Or will you be an Israelite following the Lord? Will you be among those who are put under the ban and who are being purged from the land? Or will you be among the citizens of the kingdom of God who will enter into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem as their eternal inheritance? Will you be among those who, as the psalm says, will sing and praise the power of the Lord? Or will you be among those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth at the Lord for all eternity because despite having their sins exposed, they still hate Him. Do you understand that? That's the reality of the depravity of the human heart. When Jesus describes the judgment to come and those who are cast away from the presence of the Lord, even when the judgment happens and the righteousness of God is revealed. The wicked remain hating Him forever and ever. Will you be among those who hate the Lord? Or will you be among those who will be in His presence singing of the great salvation you have received? Because despite the fact that you also deserve the same kind of judgment, you've received grace and you were made new and you were given new desires and new affections and a new heart that loved the Lord. What Christ the King calls you to do while mercy may be found is to turn to Him 
to trust in Him, to ask Him to forgive you of your sins, and He promises that He will be just and faithful to cleanse you of your sins and to apply to you the eternal worth of His own shed blood. He will make you completely new because He is a good King. And He loves to save sinners. It does not please Him in any way to see the wicked continue in their wickedness. He calls men to repent. And in that call, you are seeing His desire for you. If you have ever heard the Gospel before, that is God's mercy being extended to you before the day of judgment comes. That's Him calling sinners to come to be a part of His good kingdom and to live with His good King. He loves to save sinners. He loves to make vessels of mercy, trophies of His grace, who will be able to live with Him and reign with Him forever in His kingdom. So friends, what are you to do? You go to Him. You go to the King. While mercy may be found, you go to Him and He will make you His own. Let's go to the Lord and ask for that grace and mercy from the Lord. Father, Your Word exposes the reality of human sin. It opens us up like a physician and shows us the deadness of the human heart. Shows us the dumbness of following after false gods and idols. But even after it has exposed our sin, it is like a sweet medicine that points us to the only remedy, which is Christ. So Lord, I pray that in Your mercy, as Your Word has shown us that a day of judgment is indeed coming, that You have appointed it, fixed it, and that Christ will carry it out, But as we await that day, and as we live now in the day of grace and mercy, we pray that You would be gracious and save sinners. Bring them to Yourself. And keep us, Lord, in Your grace. We who have come to Christ, guard us and keep us so that we may remain until the end so that we who love His appearing may see His appearing and be transformed and made like Him as He is forever and ever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.